Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Today we're continuing with part two of the Tom DeFalco interview. We last left the first part with how Tom had created for merchandising purposes the Dazzler character. Now tell us, you you did something similar with G.I. Joe. I know that you worked with Hasbro in creating some backstories for some of those characters in G.I. Joe. I know Larry Hama also did. Tell us about your role in that. All right. It's not Larry Hama also did. Larry Hama mainly did. Mainly did. There you go. I was tasked with be- being in charge of the creative team mm-hmm. and, and doing the first, you know, the first couple of issues, editing mm-hmm. it. Of the comics. Uh, of the comic book. And, and that's 1982. Okay. Uh, I guess so. Maybe, I'm, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm terrible with, with years. <laughs> uh, Hasbro wanted to bring back G.I. Joe. The, the original idea was that, that it's one figure that keeps taking on these different identities as frogman as a this as a that as a snipers oh and, and like the, uh, the, like captain action or something huh yeah and and uh, you know i remember we all looked at each other and, and thought nah how about we, we we make it a team and they said but who's joe and we kept saying um well we'll come up with it and, we, mm-hmm. and and i i don't remember who came up with the idea but probably Larry, that mm-hmm. G.I. Joe was the code name for the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Archie Goodwin came up with the idea that, uh, well, we all wanted a faceless enemy, kind of like the uh, stormtroopers on Star Wars. Yeah. A faceless, sense. unlimited a- enemy. And yeah. I think uh, La- uh, Archie Goodwin came up with the name Cobra Command. Uh-huh. Um, all, all of this, the story Bibles, uh, the, the character Bibles, and that, that that's all Larry Hama. I'd mm-hmm. love to take credit for, for his work because uh, mm-hmm. Larry's a genius and um, yes. and, <laughs> and and we all wish we were. Uh, sadly, some of us are not. Um, and I, I basically got to sit back and watch Larry's genius at work. Oh, that's cool. Okay. But, so. And we're going to go back to 1981 right after this part. This is just more character creation. Tell us about being part of that creative team that introduced Transformers to the United States in 1984. <laughs> <laughs> Hasbro was so happy with what, what we had done with the G.I. Joe that they said, hey, we have another we have a, a, another uh, uh, project we'd like you guys to work on. Uh-huh. So, oh, oh, terrific. And they, and they showed up, but this time they showed up with uh, non-disclosure agreements and stuff like that, and, they, uh. and they, they brought their lawyer. Yeah. And naturally, the Marvel had to bring down their lawyer. <laughs> the two lawyers discussed this thing and argued about this thing to, to come up with a, a, a document that everybody could sign. Right. And this went on for three or four, maybe five hours. I don't know how long until mm. they finally got the document. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they said to us, all right, we want to show you something. And they took out a couple of transformers and they mm-hmm. put them on the desk. Mm-hmm. And when they put them on the desk, Larry Hammer and I were sitting opposite each other on the table 
looked up at each other and said, could you excuse us a minute? And Larry and I got up. We walked out, out of the room. We walked down the, down the hallway. You know, he went to his office. I went to my office. We both picked up Transformers that we had bought at Forbidden Planet, you know, like a year or two earlier. The Japanese, oh, the ones. Japanese ones, yeah. And put our Transformers down. And the guys look and say, where did you get those from? A local comic book store. Uh-huh. <laughs> and our lawyer said, wait a minute. If these things are for sale at local comic book stores, why are we signing this document? <laughs> and, and, the, and the guy from Hasbro, a gentleman by the name of Bob Pooper, said, give me all the contracts. And our lawyer said, no, no, I want the contracts. No, Pooper says, no, 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 hand me the contracts. And he handed him all the contracts. He took them and he ripped them all up. And he says, okay, we're not going to work on on this stuff without the, the non-disclosures. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Once we found out what they wanted us to do, I had to absent myself from the meeting mm. because I was working on another robot property for another toy company called Starriers. Uh-huh. And I, I was working on that, I think, with Louise Simonson. She might yeah. have been Louise Jones at the time. I'm, I don't quite remember, but uh, uh-huh. Louise was working on, did, did a great job developing the, the Starriers. Mm-hmm. So we went out, we worked on the stories, we put our comic book together, that sort of thing. And then I um, found out that they were still working on on Transformers. I showed up, you know, then and, you know, to pitch and to help out a bit. I kept saying, wait a minute, why are we sitting, they first came in the past? Why don't we just have it start now? I said, no, 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 we like the idea that it started, that they uh, crash landed in, you know, at the Arctic years ago. But we ended up finessing it, getting it all together, and, and then Hasbro liked it, and, and Transformers went on to become a, another big success. Oh, yeah, for sure. I actually still like Transformers even now, but the original cartoons and Marvel comics are my favorite. So then let's talk about 1981 to 1983. You were actually editing quite a few books for Marvel. What if Spider-Man, as editor now, did you get some pointers from Denny O'Neill, who you had had a relationship with up to this point, or did you kind of just from being edited, you got a sense of how to edit. How did that all work out? Well, I, I had always been asking questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I, I, I'm a very lucky guy because I got to work with the Silver Clites and the Goldwaters. Mm-hmm. When I was over at DC, I got to work with Joe Orlando, a great editor, mm-hmm. and also Sal Harrison, who also understood a lot, you know, understood uh, or created a lot of the business aspects of comics. Mm-hmm. And it worked with Denny, and it just picked up a b- bunch of things. I became an editor at Marvel because a shooter was reorganizing the editorial staff, asked me if I'd like to come on as an editor. Mm-hmm. And um, I said to him, Jim, I, you know, I haven't had a full-time job in so many years. I don't even know if I could have a full-time job at, at this stage of the game. I'm not constructed for that. I'm you know, mainly a writer, and I got you know, comic book stuff, other stuff I and, and Jim said, come on, I just need you for maybe six months. You can do six months, can't you? Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I can, I can do six months. That's cool. So I said, oh, okay, I'll do it for, for about six months or so. Yeah, six months became 20 years. <laughs> and, and I remember when uh, I, I expected to get all of the crummy titles at Marvel. He, he asked right. me what, what book that I think was the worst selling producing. And I said, I, I, I think Ghost Rider really, you know, it's supposed to be a motorcycle book, but I don't think those guys have ever been on a motorcycle. Right. You wrote the two-in-one with Ghost Rider in it. Yeah. I, I don't know when I did that. It, but I thought, yeah, Ghost Rider, you know, that, that book needs needs help. So naturally, he gave me Ghost Rider. Uh-huh. And he gave me the Spider-Man titles. Gave me Spider-Man, What If, Micronauts. Yeah. And, and I remember getting the Spider-Man titles, and I said to him, Jim, is, is it really a good idea 
going to give Spider-Man, you know, the Spider-Man titles to, to your most inexperienced editor, a guy who doesn't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And he said to me, oh, Spider-Man is just like Archie, you know, mm -hmm. except with super heroics. Right. And I thought, and I thought about it and said, yeah, you know, he's kind of right on that. All right, I'll take a shot. At it, you know, mm -hmm. what, what's the worst that could happen? They're firing me, but I'm only going to be here temporary anyway. So who cares? <laughs> yeah. Now, one of my favorite thing stories you wrote, Ron Wilson penciled it, where the thing and Sandman, they fight, but then they drink a beer together in the bar. Do you remember <laughs> writing that? <laughs> yes, I do. I love that. I love the cover to that. I love every page of that story. I posted it once in the comic book historians group, and there's so much love, fan love for that issue. What went into that? Like, how'd you come up with the thing and Sandman drinking a beer together? I, it was time to pitch a story. You know, the, uh, Sandman had become that mud monster with the uh, Hydro Man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, I, I'd like to cure Sandman. And, I'm, and I was trying to think of a story, and I thought, oh, you know, we could do this. At, you know, have them cured, and then they fight, and then the thing in Sandman fight, and that sort of thing. And and I, I started to half-heartedly pitch that, that story, uh, you know, one of those kind of standard story. Mm -hmm. And Shooter looked at me and said, y you're not interested in this story. And I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, he said, well, why are you pitching it? I said, because you wanted a story, and I had to come up with something. He said, well, what story do you want to really tell? And I said, I, I think after, after becoming a mud monster, uh, just really having the, the stuffings kicked out of you, it's yeah. going to just shake you up. And, you, and you, you, you're just going to want to re revisit wh who you are, where you are. And I just, I said, Jim, the, the only story I see is, is, is Sandman and, and, and Ben sitting down, having a talk. And then realizing how much, how much they're, they're similar characters, yeah, and where they, you know, one had gone bad, one had gone good, and and that, you know, maybe they can come to terms. And he said, "Sandman and and the thing come to terms." I said, "I think so." He said, "Well, why don't you see if you can make that a story?" Yeah, and then then I went home and worked on it and, and and you've seen the results and i remember when i turned it in jim said to me this is a this is really a weird story for a marvel comic book but you know what i think it really works it works yeah it and, works because they do have similar sensibilities you know the same kind of rough kind of blue collar sensibility about them i you know i love doing marvel two and one because i i loved doing the stories about Ben and and I got to do some some really weird stories uh you know the stories with Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos and mm -hmm. and uh and the and the blue diamond and the, you know the story with the champion mm -hmm. they were really goofball stories that really I, I I love those I also noticed you edited some Fantastic 4 that John Byrne was doing is that right Uh yes uh at a certain point I had gotten all my books on time, mm -hmm. and um, uh, you know, my deal with tutors. Once I got my books on time, I could uh, I didn't have to come into the office every day, so, mm -hmm. so I started to come in a few less days a week. Um, and uh, Jim had a, a a problem with one of the other editors. Had to you know let him go, and then uh, took all of his books and gave them to me. 
Yeah. I said, okay. Because he said your books are all on time. Make these on time too. Yes. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, thanks. That's more work. Uh, yeah. There's more work, and um, and uh, I, I got to work with uh, John Byrne for a few issues. Is he hard to edit? I mean, just because of him? No, no, not because of him. John is hard to edit because John has such a, a vision of what he wants to do. Yes. That if he sells you on that vision, you are totally sold. I see. He knows what he's doing. He's a consummate professional when it comes to the artwork, mm-hmm. comes to getting the work in on time, that sort of thing. You know, you might quibble with a sentence here or there, but, you know, he he, he knows what he's doing. So yeah. uh, in, in that regard, he's hard to edit. If you're asking me, is he thick-headed? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, but uh-huh. not not in terms of the editing process. He's just naturally thick-headed. I see. So, so, so am I. <laughs> I think. So, if you saw a sentence that you felt could have been phrased a little better, he was generally okay with that. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he, oh, that's cool. Anything that improved the story, he would embrace. Yeah. This next question is part of the merchandise items we talked about earlier, but also part of the '83 time. Is you wrote and created uh, Peter Parker's Spider Ham, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I loved that as a kid. What led into that? And this is an interesting question. Uh, I know Jim has asked, did Cerberus have anything to do with the look of Spider-Ham? I don't know if, if Cerberus had any anything to do with the look of Spider-Ham because I think, I don't remember if, if it was Larry who started, who did the initial sketch or, or if it was Mark Armstrong who did the original sketch. And I can't tell you what their... Um, what was going through their minds. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, tell us about how Spider-Ham came about. Yeah, Spider-Ham came out as kind of a joke. Yeah. Larry Hammer and I were sitting in his office, as we you know, often did, and, and all sorts of crazy projects would come whenever Larry and I were sitting together. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're talking, and, and we've just gone through some meeting with the, the uh, comic book retailers. Mm-hmm. And comic book retailers were always convinced that Marvel was going to open up its own stores. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Disney stores that were you know, in Disney World and Disneyland and that sort of thing. Yeah. They, they were always waiting for, for Marvel to open up their stores. Mm-hmm. And Larry and I just laughed about that because, you know, being a publisher is one business. Being a retailer is a whole different business. Right. And, um, you know, we knew that, you know, nobody at Marvel had the expertise to open retail stores, except for maybe me, me and Larry. And we, right. and we weren't doing that. And we're laughing about it. And Larry says, you know, and Marvel can never open up its own stores because what sells in those stores are two, you know, the two main items that sell in those stores are apparel and plush. Mm-hmm. And in those days, we, we had, uh, you know, uh, comic images would do T-shirts. Mm-hmm. And that was our only apparel license. And we had absolutely no plush. And, and Larry said, we'll never, be, we'll never be able to do plush un- unless we have funny animals. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, do you mean like Peter Pork or Spider-Ham? And Larry said, no, I was thinking more of a goose rider. And, <laughs> then, and then the two of us, you know, trying to top each other, come up with animal names for different Marvel characters. Yeah. And, and we're just throwing these names out at each other. Just yeah, having fun. Having fun. And somebody, I, I don't remember who, comes into the office 
you know, looks, listens to us for a few minutes and says, what are you guys talking about? Is this some new book you're doing? And Larry and I looked at each other and said, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then we put in a new project proposal. We took it up to Jim Shooter and said, hey, we want to do this book called Peter Parker Spider-Ham. And I remember Shooter looking up and said, what are you guys, out of your minds again? I said, come on, come on, we just want to do this goofy thing, you know, plush with this and that. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll approve it. And he, he signed That's off cool. on it. Uh-huh. Larry and I contributed, I think, 100 bucks each, and he got a friend of his to make it a Peter Porker doll. Um, we, we, you know, got together, we did the comic book, we sent it off. Uh, the comic book got, got printed. We take the doll and the comic book, we go up to the licensing people and we say, hey, we got this great idea for plush, Peter Parker, Spider-Ham. And, you know, appeared in this comic Marvel Tales, the licensing guy looks and says, I can't license Spider-Man. How the heck am I going to license some stupid pig? Get out of here. <laughs> so so through us out, we figured that's the end of it. A um, couple of months later, uh, <laughs> I get a call from Shooter. Shooter says to me, Jim Galton, the pr- president of the company, wants to talk to you. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. I said, Galton wants to talk to me? And, and I'd never met Galton before. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, it's your mess. Go fix it. Right. And I'm thinking, my mess? What the heck did I do? Yeah. So I walk up to Galton's office. I knock on the eyes, Mr. Golden. He says, Are you Tom? Yeah. I said, yes, Tom DeFago. Ah, nice meeting you, Tom. He says, this man over here is Joe Walsh. He's, he's our, uh, our distributor. Curtis Circulation. Yeah, Curtis Circulation. Yeah, Curtis Circulation, yeah. Joe Walsh is in charge of Curtis Circulation. He's got a question to ask you. And, and, and Joe says to me, uh, you ever hear of a title called Marvel Tales? And I said, yes, it's a, it's, it's a title that comes out every month that it reprints old Spider-Man stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been going on for a lot of years. And, and Joe goes, no, 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 I know that Marvel Tales. I'm talking about T-A-I-L-S. <laughs> and I go, oh, God. And I'm thinking, oh, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> did, we screw up, did we somehow screw up the distribution by naming this thing too close to Marvel Tales? Uh-huh. And I said, um, yeah, it was a it was a one shot that featured Peter Porker Spider-Ham. And, and Jim Golden goes, What? I said, Peter Porker Spider-Ham. You mean like a pig? And I go, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> um and it was a one shot and uh and, and uh Joe Wall says sold sixty percent on the newsstand, which was terrific numbers. Yeah. And Golden says to me, so when is the next issue coming out? I said, oh, <laughs> Mr. Golden, it was just the one shot. <laughs> there is no second issue. Joe Walsh says, it sold 60% on the newsstand. And Golden says, when is the next issue coming out? <laughs> Still not getting it. I said, uh, Mr. Golden, it was a one shot. And, and Joe Walsh says, it sold 60% on the newsstand. Yeah, that's significant. And, and, and Jim Golden says, Tom, you're not hearing me. When is the next issue coming out? And suddenly the light bulb goes off. I said, in, in three months, sir. And Joe Walsh jumps up, extends his hand. Pleasure doing business with That's your son. That's it. That's what he needed to get out of you, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Jim says, 
you better get to work, Tom. <laughs> and I walked downstairs. <laughs> and that, you know, Jim Shooter later said that, you know, Galton was always wanting to do some children's things and saw this as an opportunity to do children's things. But uh, I, I always remember that, <laughs> that 60% of the news thing, you know, <laughs> Tom, you're not hearing me uh, thing because uh, you always remember your first meeting with the president of the, of the company. Yeah. Any, anyway, I walked down and I said, Larry, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is Marvel Tales sold 60% on the newsstand. And Larry says, wow, that's terrific. I said, yeah, here's the bad news. It's now a monthly book and you're editing it. <laughs> and he says, when can you get the, the first plot in? I said, Larry, I, I, I could do a one shot. I just don't have time to do a, another monthly comic book. Huh. And he says, and he says, well, that's okay. I can get somebody to do it. He ended up get, getting Steve Skeets. And I've never forgiven Steve for doing a much better job on, on Peter Porker than I ever did. So I'm still huh. angry at Steve Skeets for, for that because he did a fabulous job on that comic book. How'd you feel about seeing Spider-Man in that Spider-Verse uh, animated <laughs> movie? What would you think of that? I was caught completely by surprise. Uh -huh. About two weeks before the movie came out, uh, a reporter called me up that I had dealt with before, and he says, I want to interview you about Spider-Ham. Uh -huh. I thought, Spider-Ham? And he asked, <laughs> asked me the question about the origin. I told him this, and when he, when he was done, I said, I, I have to ask, why are you asking me about Spider-Ham? He says, are you familiar with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse? I said, yeah, it's the some cartoon movie that's coming out in a couple of weeks. They invited me to the premiere, but uh, I, I, I don't have time to go. He says, did you know that Spider-Ham is going to appear in that film? I said, what? <laughs> Didn't did Marvel tell you? I said, uh, no. Spider-Ham? It's going to appear in the comic? And uh, they, they had a, a, a Marvel showing, and I went to the Marvel showing, and I... Uh, um, that's my favorite Spider-Man movie. <laughs> that's awesome. It's great. Did you, did you like the voiceover? I, I, I yeah. I thought uh, the the actor did a fabulous job. Oh, I, uh, you know, <laughs> I still can't believe it, but you know, weird stuff com comes back to haunt you. That's funny. So now, in 1984-85, you returned to Machine Man, and you wrote these four-issue limited series Machine Man that. Um, had artwork with Herb Trimp and Barry Windsor Smith, and it was more of a hard edge take. I love that story. I think it's actually probably my favorite Machine Man story. Tell us about how that came about, and then when you saw the pages, what did you think about them? It came about because uh, at one point, Larry and I were sitting in his office. <laughs> a lot of things start with this story. That's, <laughs> and, 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 that's funny. You know, Red Sonja, Machine Man, uh, all, all sorts of nonsense. Yeah. So we're, we're sitting there together. I was th saying, uh, you know, uh, we should do something together. He says, well, is there a character you'd like to do? And I said, you know, I always felt bad that Machine Man ended too soon. I'd like to do some Machine Man again. And he said, uh, yeah, but yeah, we don't want to do the traditional Machine Man. We want to do something different, something far out. Come up with something far out. And I said, uh, all right, I'll see if I can come up with something. <laughs> so I sat down and I started work, put, you know, coming up with ideas. And I... Uh, and I approached uh, Larry and I said, you know, so this is what I'm thinking that, you know, they put him in a box. I said, you know, remember this last scene of Indiana Jones where they they put the uh, Ark in the box and they lose the box. They find the box, but in the box is Machine Man. And, oh, and that's said, cool. Uh -huh. And he says, uh, oh, that, that's an interesting start. And I said, uh, yeah. And he says, uh, 
who you who, who do you think you know could, could do a good job on this? And I had been speaking to Herb, and Herb was kind of bored with what he was doing. I said, "Let me talk to Herb Trimpey." So I called up Herb, and I started talking to Herb, and Herb really got into it because Herb was uh, Herb was always game for you know any sort of crazy nonsense you could come up with. Put together the first plot. I think Herb was originally thinking about inking it, uh, but then he he did this you know very full pencil on the first first issue. And I said, uh, Herb, you, you can't ink this thing. And he said, why? I said, because you already put you know, a tight, full pencil on this. Every time you do a tight, full pencil, you get bored inking. And, and he goes, yeah, I should have done this in breakdowns, right? I said, yeah, because if you want to ink it, you know, it's, it's your assignment. If you want to ink it, you can ink it. But you know you're going to get bored. You know, Herb would get bored if he... Did a full pencil, mm. and he said, "Uh, okay, we'll we'll find we'll find somebody to ink it." And then Herb and I started working on the second issue, and I think it was about halfway through the second issue, and he said to me, uh, "I don't know if he said it to me or he said it to to Larry." Uh, he said, "You know, a friend of mine came by, he saw the pages of the first issue, and and he said he'd really like to ink it." And I figured I'd check with you guys to find out what you thought about it. And Larry said, well, who, who, who's the friend? He goes, Barry Smith. And he goes, Barry Smith wants to ink, ink this thing? And he says, yeah, Barry wants to, wants to ink it. We thought, sounds good to us. Yeah. And, and Barry said, well, you know, this is a, I haven't worked for Marvel in years. I, I probably use a pen name and that sort of thing. We said, all right, you want to use a pen name? Use a pen name, whatever you want to do. And in the meantime, Herb and I finished the second issue and started work on the third issue. And um, and then Barry started inking, and uh, and and you saw the result. It was you know really terrific. Yeah, because he's kind of OCD and perfectionist, so it turned into like a whole other type of uh, visual display in a way. Yeah, yeah, and it it was a you know a fun goofball story. Herb and I finished the third issue, but by then Barry was you know <laughs> OCD. Of, you know he he was looking at this as if it was his project. You know, started to talk to Herb and eventually convinced Herb to let him uh, pencil the, the last issue. So, wow, incredible! So now, nineteen eighty four, a lot happens in nineteen eighty four. So you start writing Marvel team up and Amazing Spider Man. Then you team up with Ron Friends doing Spider Man. Tell us about how that all came about. Your first two issues of Amazing was over Roger Stern's plots, I think. Yeah, somewhere along the line, I had gotten promoted. Mm -hmm. I was editing the Spider-Man titles, and I got promoted to uh, uh, executive editor. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was promoted, you know, I was to become Shooter second in command. Um, and Shooter, uh, I said to Shooter, he said, you know, I want you to be the second in command. You'll you'll be the executive editor. And I said, okay, do the, I still get to edit the Spider-Man titles? He says, oh sure. And then I became executive editor, that sort of thing. And he said, well, actually, we're going to put you in charge of this new thing called Star Comics, so you don't have time to do the Spider-Man titles. We're going to give them to Danny. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Danny's going to be editing the Spider-Man titles. Uh-huh. And one of my job as executive editor was to keep track of uh, creative people, you know, our, our writers and artists to see, make sure that it, people have work. Uh-huh. And uh, Danny comes in and he says, listen, um, uh, Roger Stern has a 
as an opportunity to go and take over the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's going to have to give up this, you know, Spider-Man. And I said, Roger's going to give up Spider-Man. I said, man, you know, what idiot is going to replace Roger Stern? Because as far as I was concerned, Roger did the best Spider-Man since maybe Jerry Conway and Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. And I said, oh, okay, and I pulled down my list. And I started going through possible writers and making suggestions. And I'm rattling off three or four names to him to write Spider-Man. And I look up and Danny's smiling at me with this goofball grin on his face. He says to me, um, well, actually, I know who I want. And I said, well, if you know who you want, why are you wasting my time? Yeah. He said, because you're who I want. So Danny and Fingeroth I, said that to you, right? He said that to me. And I said, uh... Uh, Danny, I'm flattered, but I can't write Spider-Man. I, I, I can't do that that kind of voice, I, I, that kind of dialogue. And he said, sure you can. Who knows Spider-Man better than you do? Yeah. I said, well, yeah, I know the character, but I, I, I don't think I can write that, especially after, after Roger did such a great job. You know, I, I don't think I can do it. He says, well, why don't you try it? You do a couple. The first two, uh, you, you'll script over Roger's plots. I said, oh, so I'm kind of like the filling guy until you can find somebody good. And he said, yeah, all right, I'll try it. And and, and that's how I got onto the Spider-Man book. I, I thought of myself as the temporary guy. Mm. Um, and, and Ron Friends, um, J.R. Jr. was, was doing um, Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also working on X-Men. And he needed yeah. some time off. Uh-huh. To to work on uh, 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 to get X Men on time and the Spider Man books were uh, you know ahead of schedule. Ron Friends came in; he was going to be the temporary guy. So two temporary guys did the uh, black costume issue. Yeah, <laughs> or, but I mean everybody remembers that issue. Yeah, yeah. What people don't remember is that before that that issue came out, the fans had heard that we were going to change Spider Man's costume. And we got a ton of hate mail. Oh, yeah. A ton of hate mail. Uh-huh. At one point, somebody from the mailroom came in and dropped a sack of mail on my desk and said to me in a very unpleasant voice, I don't know what you did, but don't ever do it again. And stormed out. Everybody was convinced this black costume thing was going to be the biggest disaster. Now, everybody was swearing that they were never going to read Spider-Man again and... We <laughs> uh, were going to give up Marvel Comics, and we were waiting for this disaster to come out. I remember at one point, Shooter came in to me and said, "What issue does he get the new costume?" I said, uh, "Two fifty-two." Mm-hmm. He says, "I want you to get rid of it in two fifty-three." Huh. <laughs> I said, "Jim, we can't do that." <laughs> I said, "Because he doesn't, you know, he's supposed to get it in Secret Wars, but he doesn't get it for eight issues. We have to at least wait." until he gets it in Secret Wars before we dump it. Because right. otherwise we're going to look like fools. Yes. And he, he, said, and he says, um, well, listen, if Spider-Man sales go down because of this, it's your butt. And I thought, hey, I'm only on it temporarily anyway. So, you know, what do you think? They're going to find me off the book. They're going to kick me off of anyway. What do I care? <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays, when people look back on that, they think of it as a brilliant marketing play and a way to up sales and all that other stuff. Yeah, we thought we were going to get killed. <laughs> That's awesome, but you stuck to your guns. That's great. Yeah. 
So how was working with Ron Friends on that Spider-Man run? Did you guys kind of gel from the beginning or how'd that work? Because you guys worked together for a long time. Yeah, well, we're still working together. <laughs> um, we just finished up a job last week. Oh, that's um, awesome. We had met previously. He was uh, working on Marvel Tales when I was the editor. And we found out that we liked the same kind of comic books. Uh-huh. And the same kind of things. And we were kind of in tune on that. So when we first started to, to do our plots together, we were spending a lot of time discussing character. I still don't know how it works out because we, we discuss characters, what the characters are feeling, what they're going through, all the emotional impacts. And then somehow or other, the stories come together. I always look back and try to figure out, how did this all come together? I, You know, Ron and I s- slowly started to gel and then more and more gelled more and more and and he started contributing his ideas and his ideas are you know at least as good as mine sometimes way better ron always comes up with better story titles than i do oh. uh, and, you know and he started uh, suggesting bits of dialogue and i was thinking wow that's a that's a cool bit of dialogue i'm going to steal that put that into the story yeah and um you know it became a partnership that has uh he said we started in 84 so I guess it's uh, was it? <laughs> it's, uh, I guess. Oh, break out our calculators, everybody! <laughs> Five years now. <laughs> I, that's awesome. This is ridiculous. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, and uh, and you guys did a lot of uh, interesting stuff together. I noticed that the aesthetic, because we're going to talk about your guys' Thor later, but the aesthetic on on your guys' uh, Spider Man has that Ditko kind of feel to it, just as the Thor has a Kirby kind of feel. Was that kind of like part of the discussions or did that just naturally happen? I think we went back to basics. You yeah. Know, I read a lot of the early Ditko's. Ron studied a lot of the early Ditko's. Um, and we wanted to get back into the essence of what that character was about. There you and go. That, 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 and that's a character who, you know, the stories are all about responsibility. I, I'd like to say we came up with very creative stories. We didn't. We almost did the same story month after month. Mm-hmm. It, it was ref- a reflection, s- some sort of reflection on responsibility, a thing oh. that you could, you know, endlessly. That's cool. And, uh, we looked at Peter as a guy who could find the dark cloud behind every silver lining, mm-hmm. that no matter how much he succeeded, he saw himself as a failure. Right. Which so many of us do. We, you know, we struggle, we try to do the best we can, but we see ourselves as failing because we, We can never achieve what we want to achieve. Right. That's basically how me and Jim are every day, right, Jim? Yep. (laughs) Hey, listen, it's, uh, you know, I keep looking at at comics and I think I'm I'm maybe two years away from really mastering this this medium. Uh, (laughs) And you've been at it for a while, but I love everything you've done, honestly. I appreciate that, but I'm still struggling to try to try to get it better. So you also co-created the Rose persona of Richard Fisk. Black Fox, Silver Sable during this. So are these discussions that you and Ron would have and start generating these characters? Because you guys, I mean, honestly, you created a lot of characters. You are not afraid of putting out new characters. I mean, when you create these characters, is that like you and him kind of on the phone talking about it? And hey, let's try this. Let's try that. How's that work? Yeah, that's that, that's a lot of it. A, a lot of the characters, Silver Sable, Black Fox, Puma. I'd gotten this uh, this thing of animal cards Mm-hmm. Which listed all animals and their, you know, their characteristics, and I, I think that we're being paid to create stories. 
and we owe it to our readers to create new stories, new characters. And I, I look back on the early days of Spider-Man, thinking, you know, every other issue they created, you know, a brand new character, and that, and we owed it to, to the readers to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the same thing when I, uh, I did. Ron and I did the same thing when we were Thor. Uh, Paul Ryan and I did the same thing when we were on Fantastic Four. We're always yeah. creating new characters because it, it's our job to chart, chart the future and to move ahead. Right. Which is interesting because you go back to the basics, but then you create new stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, well, you're you're using that as your basis, but you don't want to retell the same old stories. Mm-hmm. I um, sometimes get annoyed when I look at somebody who you know comes on a book, and um, you could tell he's he's repeating his favorite top ten stories, mm-hmm. you know, almost in order. You know, you're going to do Captain America. You got to do a Cosmic Cube story. Right. Uh, no, you don't. You should mm-hmm. create something new for Captain America. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I I just like to create new things. Now, granted, when we were coming up with with, with new character after new character, people were writing back and saying, "We don't care about these characters. We want to see you know Doctor Octopus. We want to see you know uh, the Scorpion. We want to see all these old characters." And I um, you know, every time I tr- you know, Ron and I would try to do one of those characters. I'd look and think, yeah, yeah I've seen so many great Dr. Octopus stories. I don't have anything to add. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, ah, you know, come on, let's create something new and chart, you know, chart new paths for our characters. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that, that's, you know. And I think that's why I always liked that stuff as a kid, because there was always this new person, new thing. So then 1987, that's a big year of change at Marvel for a couple of reasons. As far as Marvel corporate structure, the Marvel as a company was sold to what New was it, World. To, yeah, New World. And, and then Jim Shooter was removed as the editor-in-chief. And then you became editor-in-chief. Let's talk about that shift. Like first, why was Jim removed? How did you get picked to be editor-in-chief? Tell us about that transition. Jim was having issues with the people above him at, at a certain point he he thought he should be named publisher or 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 whatever you know when you go after the king you got to make sure <laughs> you succeed mm-hmm. uh so it, it was it was basically uh corporate stuff mm. um jim was also having issues with you know some of his creative people and uh, uh, that's been bandied about all over the place i Around that time, um, I kept thinking that when they were going to get, you know, I, I could see the handwriting on the wall. I knew that uh, Jim's days were numbered, and I, I was convinced that, that, you know, they were going to get rid of Jim and me. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to convince Jim that we should start the, uh, you know, make plans for heading for California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jim was pretty sure that uh, Marvel could never fire him. And I was pretty sure they were going to fire us both. When the day came and they informed me that uh, they were letting Jim go and they were putting me in charge, I, I was kind of stunned because it never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Did Galton that, make that decision? Uh, Jim Galton made that decision. He checked with the people from New World and stuff. I found out many years later, um, years after Galton and I both left Marvel, uh, probably about 10, 15 years after we had both left Marvel, that he, Jim Golden had been grooming me 
three-play shooter for years. Mm. But but I had never noticed it. Mm. Like, I didn't realize it. That, you know, it, it. Galton had decided that I was going to be the second in command. At one point, he sent me to England. He, he lent me to England for, for a couple of months. And I think it was because he heard that Shooter and I were disagreeing on matters, and he was afraid that either I was going to quit or Shooter was going to fire me. Mm. Jim Shooter did a lot of a lot of good for the creative people and a lot of good for the industry. And uh, he did have his issues. He was not a, a great people person when it came to creative people. He really is a creative, a creative person. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, like many creative people, you think that because you can do certain things well, you can do other things well. I look at the skills that it, that it takes to be a good editor-in-chief, and I look at the skills that it takes to be a good publisher. Mm-hmm. And these are two totally different kinds of skills. Right. You know, one is more finance contracts, you know, reading contracts and working on distribution and that sort of stuff. And and one is in the creative end. And, uh, you know, Jim and I belong in the creative end. We, you know, we shouldn't be running companies, which is, you know, over the years I've been given the opportunity uh, a few times to become a publisher. And I've passed on it every time because I've seen what a real publisher is like and I, I know I don't have those skills. Mm, interesting. In 1987, you and Ron Friends stopped doing Spider-Man and moved over to Thor. There was some question. So Jim Owsley became editor of Spider-Man. He's also known as Christopher Priest in modern comics. What happened? What made you leave Spider-Man and then move to Thor? Well, we, we were ultimately fired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jim Owsley, he was very young at the time. He wanted to prove that he you know, had a great vision for the thing, uh, for, for Spider-Man. He was a big fan of Frank Miller's Daredevil work and wanted Spider-Man to, to read more like Frank Miller's Daredevil. I gotcha. And, and at the time we said, well, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil should read like Frank Miller's Daredevil and Spider-Man should read like Spider-Man. Yeah. And they're different characters. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, decided that uh, he wanted to get rid of me and Ron, and the way to do it was by scheduling. And he would give us a schedule, we would meet the schedule, and then the day we met it, he'd hand us a new schedule that showed we were two months late. Mm. I see. So so we were, you know, constantly pushing the clock back. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that we were fired the the week or two weeks before Spider-Man versus Wolverine came out, where he... Mm. uh, he killed Ned Leeds. Right. And I think uh, he did that deliberately because he knew we would be upset about that. I see. And that came out the beginning of May. Uh-huh. Uh, um, we had an issue drawn in May. Uh, I had half the script written. And uh, he fired us. I decided to eat that half a script. That was for a book that had to go to the printers in October. Uh-huh. That's, how, that's how late the book was. Yeah. It, it ended up missing shipping mm. um, because what whatever Owsley did for the you know, May, June, July, August, September, those five and a half months, he didn't get the book done. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that's how late we were. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some time after that, um, I, I ended up going to England and um, Ron and I weren't you know working on anything for a while. And then when I came back from England, we heard that uh, Daredevil might be open. So Ron and I 
started to put together some ideas to do Daredevil. And I approached mm-hmm. the editor, Ralph Macchio, mm-hmm. and said, we'd like to do Daredevil. And he, and he was also editing Thor at the time, and he said to me, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I need to put a new team on Daredevil, but right now Thor is very late, and I could use a fill-in. Could you yeah. guys do a fill-in for me? And right, that's, said, a, that's a secret war story, right? I think so. Yeah. And, and we said, uh, yeah, sure, we could do a fill-in for you. So we did a, we did a fill-in, and we continued to put together our proposal on Daredevil. And, and uh, when we... F- as we were finishing up the the, the filling, he said, uh, "Listen, you guys did a really good job. Could you do a second film for me? Because this book right. is very late." And that and was the Dargo Future Thor story. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I, I always forget which order they came out. Yeah, and, which I love those, by the way. But okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, so we we did a second <laughs> a second Thor, and then uh, as we we're finishing that up, uh, Ralph said, "Listen, I, I I want you guys to do a monthly book for for me because I really like what you're doing." Mm-hmm. And we said, Daredevil. And he said, no, no, uh, I want you to do Thor. And I mm-hmm. remember saying to him, Thor, we can't do Thor. We don't do Cosmic. Right. And he said, you just did two issues. And I said, they're fill-ins. I could do a fill-in on any book in the line. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know if I could do Thor. And he says, well, talk to Ron. And I called up Ron. I said, Ron, what do you think? And Ron said, well, Thor was always one of my favorite characters after Spider-Man. And uh, we said, uh, okay. All right, we'll we'll do Thor, right? And uh, so we started working. And I thought, thought, well, I don't know if we can do cosmic. So let's let's see if we can do a cosmic story. And we ended up doing that celestial story. Love it. Uh, once we did that story, we said, yeah, I guess we can do cosmic. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you went into a celestial's brain. I mean, yeah. I remember that, and I'm like, wow. So that's what's in there. <laughs> so yeah, we were, you know, always trying to. Ch- even when we're dealing with old things, trying to chart new paths. Um, yeah, you were. Yeah. Because, um, uh, and also because like on your first of the of the regular run of that you guys did, you introduced like the Celtic gods. Celt- like Celtic Lair, gods, yeah. Lair, the Lord of Lightning. I mean, I-, I love that stuff. Yeah, we were, you know, like I said, we're always trying to come up with, we were always wanted to add to the sandbox, add to yeah. the playground. Right. And you created what? New Warriors and then Thunderstrike, you know, the whole Eric Masterson storyline. Yeah, yeah, that, that was kind of my mistake. Again, um, I, when we worked, at, when we introduced Eric, mm-hmm. we we knew that ultimately he was going to die at the end of his story. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, the first time he meets Thor, he's actually injured, and that's right. when he hurts his leg. Right. Thor looks at him like, the first time or second time and says, I, I have a hunch this Things are not going to go well for this guy, mm-hmm. um, and we, we we dropped all these hints throughout the, the whole series that things were were not ever going to go well for him. Right. I mean, there and were it, like actually like uh, visions of death also around him too. Yeah. You yeah. That in. Uh, at one point, when we introduced the Thor core, which was another bad joke that became something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Dargo had been you know kind of sticking it to Eric throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then later on gets a vision of what, what was in store for Eric. Yeah. And, and all we do is see Dargo's face as he's yeah. looking at the screen. Deer in headlights, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, he's very nice to Eric and says to him, enjoy every moment. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I actually was sad when Eric died. I got really invested in that in that character. And then I noticed that that aesthetic had a lot of new stuff. But again, there's a return to the basics because there was a very Kirby aesthetic to the thing. So was that in discussions or did that just naturally kind of come about? That you know everything Ron and I did was the result of discussions. Oh, that's everything awesome. Ron and I do. <laughs> By then we had you know honed the discussion thing, um, and uh, you know even if one of us starts with an idea, it you know it becomes a big discussion. Right. You were chosen as ed- editor in chief because you were seen as more flexible of a personality than shooter. Is that the bottom line there? that the upper management felt you were more flexible and the creative people felt you were more flexible. Is that what made that work? I don't know. <laughs> I never asked them. I, I think they, they targeted me early because I got my books on time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first joined the staff, the books were very late. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought in Virginia Ramita, who um, had come up with something called the Virginia Schedule. Mm. And I remember looking at that schedule thinking, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to reach this schedule. Mm-hmm. And Mark Wilmore was my assistant at the time. And I said, Mark, I, I can't come up with a plan to, 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 to come up to, to reach Virginia's schedule, but I have come up with a plan that'll get us on time. Mm-hmm. And he said, what is it? I said, we're going to produce a book every three weeks. Because these are monthly comic books, and science says if you push do one every three weeks, eventually you gotta you, you gotta you know catch up on time and get ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. And um, and and Grinny said, "Yeah, how are you going to do that?" I said, "It's easy. We're going to call. We're going to start with the writers. We're going to call up all the writers and said and tell them that every three weeks I need a plot. Right. And if if the plot is one day late, there's going to be a fill in. Uh huh." And don't don't expect me to call you up. Don't don't expect me to to warn you. Just assume if you're late, you're going to get a fill in because you are. Mm-hmm. And and all of my writers were such pros. They they all rose to the challenge. Roger Stern, Bill Mantlo, Mark Demattis. They were terrific. They came they they came up and you know they 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 got the books on time and eventually ahead of, ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to the point where we would have two, two or three issues in the draw, mm-hmm. as opposed to other guys who were just barely getting them out. Barely on getting that one in. Yeah. Yeah. When I was on the Spider-Man titles, I started work with this gentleman by the name of Ed Hannigan doing cover sketches. Mm-hmm. And we started to play with the, the logos. We were blowing up logos and just doing weird cover cover sketches and, and and pushing the limits and and sales on the books uh, you know i had great creative team so i got, got to give the you know content 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 that's how you sell comics mm-hmm. the content was great the covers were great the guys were all doing a fabulous job i'm just sit, sitting back you know waking up occasionally to, to have lunch um and uh you know the sales sales rose and and we were on time so management you know noticed that um i i also got along you know good with uh, hasbro and a, a couple of the, the other toy companies the toy people yeah so i got along good with those i got along good with the the publisher the publisher uh-huh. a gentleman by the name of mike hobson a true gentleman in every sense of the word 
a great publisher. Um, you know, still a good friend of mine. We we get together for lunch every once in a while, and uh, you know, it, uh, I'm a lucky guy. I I, I managed to get. <laughs> I'm still friendly with all my old bosses. Mm-hmm. That's great. You, when you were editor in chief. Also, uh, during a couple of key corporate events, uh, one was when um, New World was sold Marvel to, to Revlon, and then when, in 1991, when Marvel went public. So how was being editor-in-chief during these corporate events, and did things change around you, or did you always have to keep stuff, corporate things, in mind as editor-in-chief, and what were some particular stressors, or was it business as usual? It was pretty much business as usual. Mm-hmm. Um, I always figured that as long as we were making money, they would leave us alone. Right. So I, I, I had a, a very bottom line mentality about that stuff. The comic books have to sell. Mm-hmm. As a result, uh, I made sure that all, all of the editors got the sales reports, both direct market and newsstand sales, so they, they, they could track their sales. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I thought it was very, very important that editors could track their sales. Yeah. This way, if, if sales blipped up, they could look at the cover and say, well, wait a minute. Oh, what? why did this blip up and, and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, you know, Groomwald and I, we only looked at the, the, the books that weren't selling. Mm-hmm. If a book was was on a downward path, Mark and I would get you know, get all the, 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 you know, the latest issues back, back to the point where it started to fail, read them all and try to figure out what was wrong and then go talk to the editor, you know, and sometimes his creative team and try to get the book back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certain, you know, as a result of the certain editors, I almost never, never spent any time with. Because they were doing okay already. Yeah, yeah, you know. Bob Harrison, the X books. I realized I didn't spend. I, I very rarely spend time with Bob because his books were selling well. So yeah. So, so I, I, I figured if a book was selling, all I could do is mess it up. So stay right. away from him. That's cool. So he actually kind of probably gave some of the editors a little more freedom than Shooter did. Um. Yeah. I I thought that it was important that the editors actually edit. Yeah. I I also think that. By the time a book came to me, um, you know, the next two or three issues are already predetermined. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I futz with this, I got to futz with the next three or four issues. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I only looked at books that weren't selling. Thanks so much for your insight in your editor-in-chief supervising style, Tom. This concludes part two of the Tom DeFalco interview. Join us next week with... Me, Alex Grant, and my co-host Jim Thompson for part three, where we start our discussion with the image revolution. Cheers. Cheers.